Well, Merry Christmas. It's wonderful to have you join us on this most holy of nights. As we have prepared for the celebration of Christmas over the last several weeks during this season of Advent, we have been focusing our attention on the scripture texts that tell the story behind Handel's Messiah, one of the greatest oratorios the world has ever heard. And tonight we come to a poignant moment in Handel's Messiah. Up until this point, all of the scripture texts have been prophecies taken from the Old Testament. But today we turn from prophecy to history, to real events that took place in time and space. And so today I'd like us to draw our attention to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which describes the evening of Jesus' birth. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So here we have real people, shepherds living in a particular time and place in the countryside outside of Bethlehem. And they claim that angels appear to them to inform them that a baby has been born in the ancestral hometown of King David. And this child is none other than the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, Christ the Lord. The problem for many of us as modern people is that we find all of this a little hard to accept. We tend to think that we live in a closed universe that is strictly determined by cause and effect, and therefore we're quick to rule out miracles like the virgin conception of Jesus or the sudden appearance of angelic messengers as simply impossible. And therefore, we view the Gospels as nothing more than made-up stories rather than history because they're written from the point of view of faith. Well, there's a number of things that I could say about this, but let me make two comments, one general and the other specific. First, the general comment. Of course, the Gospels were written from a particular point of view because that's true of all of history. And the Christian faith is no more misleading as a point of view than modern agnosticism or atheism. You can't write from nowhere. Everyone writes from somewhere. We all know that that's true. I mean, just think, if someone were to write a biography of George Frederick Handel, would you trust this biography? If the, biog if the biographer was tone deaf and could not read music? I don't think so. And likewise, just because the Gospels were written by people who were committed to the truths that they reported doesn't mean that they're false. If anything, we should trust them even more, like we trust the victims of a great tragedy precisely because they were closer to the events that they describe. But the specific comment I would make is this, that both the Gospel of Matthew and Luke provide us with slightly different accounts of what actually happened. And that's precisely what you would expect to find with real history. 
especially if it is based on eyewitness testimony. And even though they provide us with slightly different accounts of what happened, they agree on two major points. They both agree that Mary was a virgin when she conceived of Jesus and that angelic messengers informed others of his birth. And what I find so intriguing about this is that these two points, the virgin conception of Jesus and the appearance of the angels, is not absolutely critical in order to move the plot forward. For example, the Gospels of Mark and the Gospels of John don't tell us anything about the birth of Jesus, and yet it doesn't undermine the story that they have to tell. Which just goes to show that the only reasons why Matthew and Luke include these details in their Gospels is because they believe that they actually happened. And why not? If there really is an all-loving, all-powerful creator God behind this universe and responsible for everything that we see around us, then God can do whatever God wants. Why should we place limits on what God can or cannot do? All talk about limits is really nothing more than the product of our own human philosophies. The fact of the matter is that reality is often stranger than fiction. We have to remember the words of Hamlet. There's more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our human philosophies. As much as our secular world might try to squeeze out the possibility of God or the supernatural, we human beings cannot suppress our longing for spirituality or our feeling that there's got to be something more than this world that we can see and that we can touch. And in fact, as we see around the world, the more people try to suppress spirituality in places like China, the more it bubbles up all over. So what does that tell us? Well, Christmas reminds us that the world is far more mysterious and simultaneously far more hopeful than perhaps we ever realized before. And if we are willing to open our minds to the very possibility that God has become one of us in the person of Jesus, well, then that changes everything. And so during our brief time together tonight, I'd like us to simply consider what is the central message of Christianity. And I could sum it up in three two-word phrases, borrowing from the language of the angel. What's the heart of Christianity? Good news, great joy for all. Good news, great joy for all. See, first of all, the heart of Christianity is good news, gospel. The expression that the angel uses, I bring good news, is actually all one word in the Greek, stemming from a root word, euangelion, which we usually translate as good news or gospel. That prefix eu, E-U, means good. It appears in English words. A eulogy is a good word. A euphoria is a good feeling. Your rope is a good rope. That was a joke. <laughs> Just looking to see if you're paying attention. EU means good. Angelion means message, news. Do you hear the word angel? An angel simply a messenger. So the euangelion is the good news, the good message, the gospel. And if that's true, well, then that tells us that the heart of Christianity is a announcement. 
It is breaking news. And in fact, the word gospel was a near technical term in the ancient world to describe news of a life-changing, history-making significance, like the birth of a new king. So for example, archaeologists have found an inscription dating back to 9 BC, which describes the birth of Caesar Augustus, the emperor, and likens him to a god. The inscription reads, the birthday of the god was for the world the beginning of the gospel through him. But the angel on the night of Jesus' birth is telling us that the greatest news that the world has ever heard is not the birth of Caesar Augustus. No, it is the birth of Jesus. You see, the gospel of Jesus is the gospel to end all gospels. This is the ultimate life-changing, history-making event. And you see, if the heart of Christianity is ultimately gospel, then it tells us that the essence of this faith is not instruction about what you need to do for God, rather it is news about what God has done for you. The essence of Christianity is not instruction, it's news. The heart of it is not what you do, but what God has done. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion, every other philosophy, every other ideology in the world. Look, every religion involves both teaching and events. In every other religion, the teaching takes precedence over the events. It's the teaching that matters most. So consider Buddhism. Even if you were to take away the birth, the life, the death of the Buddha, even if Buddha never existed, it wouldn't matter because you'd still have the teaching. You could still follow the eightfold path towards enlightenment or consider Islam. Even if Muhammad never lived, it wouldn't matter because you would still have the five pillars of Islam. But if you take away the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity literally falls apart. In every other religion, the teaching takes precedence over the events. It's the teaching that matters most. But in Christianity, the events take precedence over the teaching. It is the event that matters most. If you take away the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, it all falls apart because it is these events that matter most. And that is why the heart of Christianity is gospel. It is news. It is an announcement of what God has done. And that is why this good news leads to great joy. And in fact, it's even more fun in the Greek. Because what the angel says is, I bring good news of mega joy, supersized joy. There's no containing this joy. And why is that? Because the angel is now telling us that as a result of this event, the world is now a fundamentally different place because of the arrival of Jesus. You see, the good news is that Jesus was born to live the life that you and I should have lived, and to die the death that you and I deserve to die. He died in our place, on the cross, for our sins. For the wrong things that we've done, and for the right things that we've failed to do. But he not only died as our substitute, he defeated death itself. 
And God raised him up with a new physical body to enter into a whole new mode of existence. And God has promised that those who are united to Jesus by faith will experience the same thing. God will do for us at the end of history what he did for Jesus in the middle of history, which means that the resurrection of Jesus is just the first sign that God is bringing a whole new world into being, a whole new creation where everything that once went wrong will be made right. Do you see why this brings great joy? The heart of the gospel is that Jesus, by sheer grace, has done everything that is necessary through his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection to reconcile you in relationship to God and to renew the whole world in time. And that is what unlocks the great joy. And yet the problem for many of us is that still we may not feel especially joyful. We may not feel like much has changed in our own personal lives or in the world around us. We might feel a little bit like Charlie Brown. At the beginning of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, he says, I don't especially feel happy. I don't feel the way I think I'm supposed to feel. And if that's true of you, well, then you're not alone. One of the unique features of living in the late modern world is that it does lead to a kind of melancholy. And why is that? Well, many people are not sure if they believe in God, but we do believe in original sin. Original sin is inescapable. We're surrounded by it because of the absurdly stupid and evil things that we do to one another. So we're not sure that we believe in God. We don't have hope, and yet we're surrounded by sin, which leads to despair. The literary critic George Steiner once put it like this. He said, central to everything I am and believe and have written is my astonishment, naive as it seems to people, that you can use human speech both to bless to love, to build, to forgive, and also to torture, to hate, to destroy, and to annihilate. G.K. Chesterton once said that original sin is the only doctrine that can be empirically validated through 2,000 years of human history. And so the question is, how can we experience this great joy when there's so much around us that suggests that we should be sad. Well, Christianity Today magazine recently published a story about Bono, the lead singer of U2, the rock band, because Bono has published a memoir entitled Surrender. And if you know anything about Bono, you know that he was raised in Dublin by a stern Catholic father and a very warm Protestant mother, but his mother died when he was only 14 years old. And from a very young age, Bono was introduced to the person and work of Jesus and became part of a very tight-knit Christian community. And his relationship to Jesus has always been bedrock foundational for him and for his art, although not everyone has always understood his faith. So he tells this story of Billy Graham, the evangelist, reaching out to him to meet him. And so he flies to wherever Billy Graham was, and his son, Franklin Graham, picks him up at the airport. And there's Franklin Graham, side by side with Bono in the car, so he takes advantage of the opportunity to pepper him with questions about his faith, which he didn't fully understand. And so Bono relates the conversation like this. 
Franklin says, you, you really love the Lord. Yep. Okay, you do. Are you saved? Yep. And saving. He doesn't laugh. There's no laugh. Have you given your life? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Oh, I know Jesus Christ, and I try not to use him as my personal Savior, but, you know, yes. Well, why aren't your songs um, Christian songs? Well, they are. Oh, well, some of them are. What do you mean? Well, why don't they, why don't we know that they're Christian songs? And Bono replies, they're all coming from a place, Franklin. Look around you, look at the creation, look at the trees, look at the sky, look at these kinds of verdant hills. They don't have a sign up that says, praise the Lord, or I belong to Jesus. They just give glory to Jesus. Now, technically, the music of U2 could be described as post-punk. But unlike many of U2's contemporaries, who seem to indulge in their rebellious spirit and delighted in cynicism and disgust and despair, the music of U2 was a little bit more like a lament. A lament that cries over the way things currently are. And yet underneath that lament, there's also hope. Hope for the way things might be when God finishes his work in our midst. And it's that combination of both lament, taking stock of the way things really are, the way they really are, and yet tying them together with hope, the way they can be by God's grace, is what we most need in our world. And that's the kind of songs that they produced. One of the most famous songs they ever wrote was straight out of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. I will sing, sing a new song. And so the interviewer asked Bono about this combination of lament and hope in the music of U2, and Bono responded by saying, yeah, punk rock prayers. That's probably what they were. It was an amazing time, punk rock. They really inspired me. I suppose what we rebelled against in U2 was something a little more elliptical, maybe harder to follow for some, but we were rebelling against ourselves. I had a Bible, and I remember highlighting Ephesians chapter 6. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of the gospel of peace. It made a huge impression on me. And as an 18, 19-year-old, I thought, that's the real fight. That's the real fight that's going on. The rest is just an expression of that. And by the way, I didn't think religious people understood their own scripture because they were often using their religion, certainly in Ireland, as a club to beat others down. I mean, the Catholics and the Protestants, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, we picked a more interesting fight. Now, do you hear that? Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is not against one another. Your real enemy is not the other human being standing in front of you opposing you. No, there's a much more interesting fight going on if we only had eyes to see it. And though the world may not know it yet, the good news of great joy is that the ultimate battle has already been achieved through what Jesus has accomplished for us, through his life and his death and his resurrection. And if we had a, the slightest sense on our hearts 
of how much Jesus has already accomplished for us, we would not be able to contain our joy. We would experience the great joy of the gospel. And Bono referred to his music as an act of defiant joy, and that's the message of Christmas. Christmas provides us with great joy, defiant joy, because it gives us joy even in the midst of our present circumstances. No matter how much gloom and sadness surrounds us or our personal lives, we can be sure that a new world of Jesus' making is already headed our way. So the heart of the Christian faith is good news, great joy for all. Perhaps the most surprising feature of this long-awaited Messiah is that he is not only the Savior of his people, the Jewish people, the people to whom God had entrusted the covenants and the promises and the prophecies, but he is the Savior for all people. I bring you good news of great joy for all people from every conceivable background, and that includes you. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you, this good news, this gospel is for you. Notice that the angel doesn't say, I bring good news, but I bring you good news. And the angel does not merely say, a child has been born, but unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This news is for you, but this news will not do you any good if you think that it is intended for someone else. You need to receive it as news for you. Jesus was not merely born to live, die, and rise again for humanity in general. No, he was born to live, to die, and to rise for you in particular. And I remember the moment when that thought first struck me and became a reality to me. I had grown up in the church. I'd attended church every Sunday throughout my early years, attended Sunday school, went through confirmation class. So if at the end of middle school you had asked me, do you believe in God? I would have said yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the unique son of God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Do you believe that he rose again from the grave? I would have said yes to all of these things. Not because I had thought about them, but precisely because I had not thought about them. I never gave it any thought. This was just something that I was familiar with. It was part of my upbringing and my background. But when I was 14 years old, a very unlikely person invited me to attend a Bible study. I had never gone to a Bible study before. I'd never seen people my own age pray to Jesus in a very personal and intimate way. I'd never seen people my own age examining the scriptures and seeing how they actually apply to their own life story. It was December of 1992, and the passage that we were reading that night was taken out of Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel informs Mary that she will bear God's own son and that God will become a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. And I remember being struck by the words of Gabriel, for nothing will be impossible with God. If God is God, if God exists, then there's no limit to what God can do. Nothing is impossible with God. And for the very first time, the thought struck me, if this is true, if this really happened, 
Well, then this changes everything. If this is true, then it means the world could never be the same. And I didn't do anything that night, I didn't say anything that night, but I never looked at the world again through the same eyes. Although I did keep going back to that Bible study and to others like it, year in, year out, until now look, here we are, 30 years later. But what about you? Has the penny dropped? Have you ever stopped to think and to consider what it all means that we're celebrating here tonight? Nothing is impossible with God. If this is true, if this really happened, then your life can never be the same. The world is a fundamentally different place because of the arrival of Jesus. This is the heart of Christianity. Good news, great joy for all. And that includes you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel of gospels, the ultimate life-changing, history-making event is the arrival of Jesus into our world. We thank you that through his life and his death and his resurrection, he unlocks mega joy, the joy of knowing that we can be reconciled in relationship to you and we can see this whole world one day renewed in justice and love. And help us, Lord, to see that this good news of great joy is for all people, not just some. And that includes us. So help each and every one of us to receive this news for ourselves so that we might experience that mega joy that you offer us. Despite our circumstances, help us to experience the defiant joy of Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.